This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's quite an honor to be here today. And, and uh, what has been striking to me, besides this, uh, the individual conversations today, are the conversations that I've heard over the last 15 years that I've been engaged with the University of California. Uh, the appreciation and the awareness uh, of entrepreneurship that it's no longer a pejorative term, uh, that there is a recognition that a lot of these solutions that we work on in our laboratories and uh, um, uh, institutes have, can have a major impact and solve the immediate problems that we are facing. Today we're going to have a conversation with some uh, members who are actually making that happen and representatives of the campus. And what we decided to do is to do this a little bit differently, is that we actually uh, have two colleagues uh, from the UC Berkeley Innovation Ecosystem. They're going to talk about how they engage and interact with one another, and then two from UCSD. Because we want to give you a sense of the interplay that, first of all, innovation is a team sport. Uh, and that it requires multiple actors. It's a very nonlinear process. And whereas before we thought it was okay to take an invention and just push it out to the market, today we need to engage partners and in industry much earlier on in the process because we need the feedback and we need to do this agile development because very often we don't know what we're going to get when we uh, start this journey. And so the processes that we've put into place to help make that happen, but also the human capital element of what we still need to do. But what I'd like to uh, start off by asking, and I'll address this to Paul and to Bernard, because you've both been with the University of California for uh, a fair amount of time. And so over the last couple of decades, how have you seen kind of the um, university evolve in terms of its support of entrepreneurs and this concept that startups aren't a bad word? Uh, I'll go first. Shall I go first? Please. So um, I've been a Berkeley professor for 25 years now. And really in the last 15 years, I would say, we've seen the big change. The real meat of that change has been these uh, incubators and living laboratories and uh, one that we call the foundry inside Citrus that has really enabled that landscape to change. And without those uh, investments, they were substantial investments, the Marvell uh, micro nano fabrication facility, for example, is probably about $70 million. Uh, the Citrus facility is pro- approaching a $1 million. And of course, QB3, which is on our campus, has the garage. And I know that's a multi million dollar investment. So that enabled the three companies that I've had the pleasure to be involved in to start because we had a place to go to create prototypes that came out of PhD theses and to get to that first level. The second big change, and it's been pushed by our students as much as anything, such as uh, this wonderful guy to my left, uh, has been the, the buzz to create these companies. And that's created a cultural change, and many faculty have gone along with that. So what's been the greatest pleasure for me, and I'm going to hand over now to Bernard, is that uh, at no point has anybody sacrificed their academic activities. The PhD students still get their PhDs done. The publication records are still the same. We get a lot of block funding from NSF and NIH and so forth. But it's short. what I used to say when I ran Citrus is that we're shortening the pipeline between that initial investment of uh, fundamental research to get it out 
through these living labs, through these big investments in things like the Marvell Lab, the Citrus Lab, the QB3 Garage, and that enables people like Gavin to find an ecosystem that they can bloom in. So I think that's a nice summary from a Wonderful. UC Berkeley perspective. Bernard, uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's similar for you. Okay. Uh, yes, <clears throat> quite similar. I, um, I came to UCSD uh, 20 years ago. Uh, prior to that, I had been at the University of Michigan, where we actually started a company that eventually got listed on NASDAQ. So I came to the UC system with that experience. In 2000, we started this company called Genomatica that Jeff now uh, works at. I would say that was a little stiffer process than the previous one I uh, had experienced. But uh, I would say that there are two important changes that have happened here recently at UCSD that uh, I think are going to improve our situation markedly. First, as Sandra Brown said in the introductory uh, uh, remarks, uh, there are some fundamental changes here at uh, uh, UCSD in terms of how uh, tech transfer will be managed. And um, I look forward to experiencing the new system. The um, other, I think, notable change is the uh, entrepreneurial interest of younger students Mm -hmm. that we are experiencing, just like Paul said. Um, Half of my lab now wants to start a company. (laughs) I've had a few successful uh, students in the past that have started companies. But I think it's very important for us now to realize the enablement uh, that the internet gives uh, young uh, students, uh, people in their 20s, to do things. And one of the things we have to do at uh, universities now is to make sure that that creative talent fully flows uh-huh. and there are no roadblocks mm-hmm. for them. And it was interesting for me to watch a 60 Minutes piece uh, on the lady that started uh, that Spanx company, uh, Women's Underwear. Um, she was in her 40s, I think, early 40s when the interview was taken, was in the Billionaires Club by then. And I would encourage you to watch that episode because I think she came up with that idea in her late 20s and she goes through how she could use the internet as a resource for everything, IP, contracts, manufacturing, and everything. So I think we have to realize that there is a new driver with us now that may not have been here 15, 20 years ago. Hmm. Nice. So I'm interested from uh, Gavin's perspective, because here you have a, a, a young man who has been bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. What was it exactly that um, uh, kind of sparked your interest in doing that and created that urgency? I think the story of ecosystems is really resonating for me because I had no intention to start a company. Um, I was a PhD student who realized that my research could cut some carbon footprints. So I thought that was pretty cool. I showed up to a hackathon thinking that we were going to have a little fun and we would cut our own carbon footprints on a washing machine or something. Um, And it was really all the students around me, particularly the undergrads. It's often the undergrads that actually have the energy to make something happen. And before long, the PhD students like me, who were sitting around used to five-year time frames to begin to think about a prospect, eight hours later, these undergrads came back and said, well, our app works. We can cut the carbon footprint of pretty much anything that uses electricity. And we realized we had just started a company with no plan to. (laughs) And I think the ecosystem at Berkeley has really pulled us along And we see many other grad students now, PhD students, who aren't a part of that. But every year, there's fewer of them. Every year, it's more likely that groups like the Foundry are well-advertised. And you actually see MBA students now reaching out to PhD students, saying, hey, do you have any inventions I could use? I would love to start a company. And I think that's just completely rewriting the rules on what you think of in research, in particular towards making it more practical, even if you never actually launch a company at all. I want to tell the audience a little bit about your uh, company that you're starting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so what WattTime does is we um, change the timing of anything that uses electricity. So uh, if you have an electric vehicle, we often hear they run on coal plants. That's not true if you're able to charge at specific moments when there's excess clean energy on the grid. So essentially, we turn anything that uses electricity into a form of energy storage. Um, and what's really interesting about this technology is it's so broadly applicable. A university is a fantastic place to try it out. So when we realized what market are we in, we're in everything, um, it was a really good place to be to start realizing, wow, we can try this in the nano lab, we can try this with the electric golf carts down the road, and thermostats, a little of everything. Interesting. Now, Jeff, you come from kind of an external perspective, so from industry, kind of working and collaborating uh, uh, with the university. Uh, tell us a little bit about kind of how that started and how you've seen that kind of evolve over the years. Sure, happy to do that. Um, I've spent my career in industry, uh, but I would describe myself as a serial entrepreneur within industry. Uh, and this kind of started uh, really when I was a freshman uh, at the University of Michigan, interestingly, in chemical engineering. And uh, the first oil crisis happened, and the price of oil in a few months went from 3 to $12 a barrel. <laughs> and there were... Uh, uh, car lines around the block to, to get gasoline for, you know, the astronomical price of uh, 30 cents a gallon. And um, uh, in addition to that, I, I was uh, raised in an outdoors family. And during a period of time when pollution of the Great Lakes was really a, a big issue. So combining those things, uh, I thought there has to be a better way to make uh, chemicals, fuels, and materials than from fossil uh, feedstocks. And that's what I've been doing uh, ever since. Um, uh, connecting with Bernard, uh, I met Bernard uh, when we were both graduate students sometime in the last century. And um, uh, we connected later on, uh, still in the last century. Bernard was a professor at Michigan, and he was modeling red blood cells. Uh, I was uh, leading a project uh, at a big company to develop a fermentation process to make the amino acid tryptophan, which is used as a, an animal feed uh, nutrient. I had a big problem in that the metabolism that's involved in, in making tryptophan uh, and making it efficiency is, efficiently is really complicated. So I remembered Bernard, and I called him up uh, one day and said, red blood cells, you know, isn't that boring? Wouldn't you rather do something a lot more exciting? Uh, and so with, uh, with that uh, encouragement, and I think $50,000, if I remember right, he put a student on the project. Um, and uh, I'll let Bernard finish the story. It solved my problem, but it went on to be something much more than that. Uh, and before I turn it over to Bernard, uh, you know, one point is um, for entrepreneurs, uh, uh, in this case, the problem found Bernard, but look for a problem to solve, an important problem to solve. Yeah, so I remember uh, that phone call very well when uh, Jeff called me up and uh, uh, persuaded me to look past the red blood cells and not E. coli metabolism. Um, it was, like Jeff said, a problem that came from a company, a practical problem that needed to be solved. And... Um, we had to um, deal with it uh, in a different way than had been done before, ended up developing a new mathematical procedure to solve it. Um, and this was probably in the early 90s. And that turned out to be the initiation of an enormously successful 
academic undertaking since then, which has been called constraints-based approach to modeling cellular functions. And today in the genome scale era is giving us the abilities to look at how to design uh, cells uh, on a genome scale. And now with the new uh, genome editing tools, uh, the future of this field looks very bright. But that whole uh, adventure started with uh, the phone call from Jeff. And you guys have been friends for many years, but you two haven't uh, known each other quite that long. Uh, what was the catalyst for you guys coming together? It was the foundry. Do you want to describe that a bit? Or? Well, yeah, the, um, a combination of something called the foundry and one of our new energy challenges in the Berkeley Energy and Climate Institute. We, we offer a very modest prize of $10,000 for a company to apply for the prize. But the key thing that we, we've heard, heard many times now is that that in itself won't usually do much, right? You have to build a community of uh, other successful entrepreneurs that we reach out to in San Francisco, in the East Bay, and in Palo Alto. And that's the buzz, I think, that our students really appreciate. Because after all, the faculty, you know, they have their day jobs and they're teaching and doing research. It's very important to have those outside eyes to... Um, to, to nurture people uh, like Gavin, but, but to also give them lots of feedback to introduce them to people. And I can hear from your conversations uh, that that's been a really magical part of your interaction. And that's what we've created in the uh, building that we all live in, where there's that uh, very open environment. Uh, there's not really an office environment. It's a very cube-like environment where people can come and work together uh, 24-7. We, we've created these 3D printing and uh, electronics labs downstairs so people can register there and, and build a, a piece of hardware that they can show to early stage uh, venture people. And so it's, it's, not, it's not just one thing. It's creating this environment where someone like Gavin can uh, blossom and you can exchange ideas, uh, meet other mentors, meet other people from the community, look for venture capital. And I think all of those parts moving together with the support, incidentally, of our intellectual property and research office, IPIRA, that's all sort of adding to a community of people that feel empowered by this excitement of, of doing nice things. So. Nice. Well, this conference is focused on you know, carbon sustainability, neutrality. Uh, how do the kinds of companies that we create within the university, how are these fundamentally different? than, uh, let's say, just creating a widget and pushing yeah. it out into the market. I can, I, I'm not going to do all the talking. One shot about that is that one of our companies called Persistent Efficiency, uh, which is a fledgling company, uh, created by two students out of my lab, it could not function without these MEMS scale, microelectromechanical system scale devices that were made in the Marvell Fabrication Lab, which were then taken to scale. So we needed that 60 to $70 million UC investment to be able to create that sensor from which we can start a company. So I think that's an important thing. Um, I mean, when I talked to, to Bill Tucker about organizing this conference with you, that is a key thing, that we can bring special, special things from a big uh, University of California campus that's more difficult to do elsewhere. We can create technologies with PhD programs and NIH-funded, uh, NSF-funded activities, which then uh, can go on to these miraculous, miraculous, miraculous uh, products that are different to what you could do without all those important UC facilities. So we can do things that other people can't. Okay. Bernard? Yeah, so... Um, <clears throat> Uh, Jeff articulated uh, his dream uh, early on in his career. 
to realize that we have to replace the chemical industry, which is a three and a half trillion dollar industry, <laughs> a global industry, highly interconnected, but that one that could realistically be, I think, converted now uh, into a bio-based industry. And um, as we've heard throughout the day, we are talking about the timescale of decades. This is not the dot-com <laughs> dynamic that we're going to be looking at here. Uh, what we can do uh, in this space at universities is to deploy some of the tools I mentioned earlier to yeah. design a cell that can actually make a compound or a biofuel that needs to go into production. But a cell like that has no commercial value because it's not the solution to make a product. You have to actually prototype a little process to do it. So we would really need to have on campuses, ideally, to succeed in this field, a pre-pilot scale uh, facility where we could prototype maybe bench scale or a little bit bigger the production of the compound, its, its purification, look at the impurities and so forth. And if we were to get to that stage, we would actually cross the so-called valley of death in which there are many corpses <laughs> in this field. But with a prototype process, you can actually make a real project plan for the capital needed. You could do a real NPV calculation and you could pull that, push that off of campus. That's why I was so interested in the earlier discussion here that described the university as living laboratories of populations of 50,000 people. They are on scale. We could actually build you know, prototypes of things on campus that are very short distance away from commercialization and building companies. So in this space in particular, it would be nice to have a biodigester like uh, Linda Katehi uh, described uh, as being uh, present at the UC Davis um, to prototype processes before they actually go on campus, uh, off campus, where they can uh, take on a, a measurable commercial value. Excellent. So this quite next question is for both Jeff and uh, Gavin as uh, people who are kind of engaging. What are, first of all, the resources that you avail yourselves of, uh, the entrepreneurial resources that you might connect with at the uh, university? But also, what do you think is missing? Besides capital, what more can we be doing or what should we be doing? Yeah, sure, I'm happy to address that. Um, uh, So universities, of course, are sources of knowledge, and I already gave you an example of taking advantage of that uh, in the interaction with Bernard. Uh, But big ideas. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of smart people in the world, and I think there are less really good big ideas than there are smart people. So big ideas, um, talented people uh, to, to join companies, and as Bernard noted, once you get some momentum going, you're known as a professor who helps people start companies. Guess what? That attracts students who would like to start companies. Uh, and um, intellectual property. Last but not least, keep investing in research uh, because uh, $4.3 billion uh, goes a long ways. You know, it's uh, nominally four times the amount spent on R&D by the largest chemical company in the world to give you a sense of uh, magnitude. So uh, talented people, big ideas, intellectual property, which gives companies the basis for, you know, an unfair advantage. Uh, and, and keep investing in research. 
Gavin. I couldn't agree more with what uh, Jeff was just saying about talented people. I think one of the things we often talk about is encouraging innovation by the UC system. I think that's actually the wrong way to think about it because the innovation is going to happen. These students are some of the brightest kids, especially some of the undergrads. They are going to be starting companies. The question is, what will those companies do? And there's a big difference between the latest Angry Birds app and a life-changing experience that will actually make a difference in the environment. Yeah. And I think what the UC system has gotten very good at but can get even better at is hitting the pressure points that speaks to these students. And in my experience, some of the very brightest minds in the system, and this is true of Google and Facebook programmers as well, uh, yes, they want to see a high paycheck, but what they really want to see is change. What they really want to know is that they did something that matters. And the UC system has this amazing lever for the valley of death particularly in software, where often you can write the software in literally 20 minutes. One of our apps was a 20-minute project to write it. The hard part isn't writing the product, it's getting it used. And what the Living Labs concept is really meant for us is that we call up a company and say, hey, would you like to try this crazy new product? And they say, well, has it ever been done before? And we could say, yeah, UC Merced was willing to deploy this, and it seemed to work for them. Conversation finished. It's amazing how Fortune 500 companies will respond to knowing that the UC system was a leader there. And what they respond to isn't knowing how much money you invested. What they respond to is knowing that you were happy with the results. So following on that, you know, it's, it's wonderful to kind of encourage the entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurs to develop products that are relevant to the market. But how might we use some of that or tap that, some of that brain power to solve some of our internal uh, uh, challenges and help the university itself innovate? I think the, the connection really is to uh, think of all of these uh, innovators as looking for problems. I completely agree with that. And not always being very good at finding them. Um, and I think what has been so fascinating uh, is to see some hackathons, for example, where an institution like the UC will say, these are the problems we would like to solve. We will give you access to data sets that normally you can't download on the internet. We will describe to you problems that normally you wouldn't know about. And if your invention actually works, we promise that we will think, at least seriously think, about actually using it. Completely different reaction from all of the kids who are able to program these apps. Excellent. And Paul and Bernard, do you have a, a comment on that? Um, on the power of young people? Not only the power no, of young I'm people, not, but how do we kind of use all this brain trust to help us innovate ourselves and our, well, our processes? Um, so... <clears throat> I've been a professor for 30 years, um, and I'm always astonished at the power of young people that are in their 20s, how much they can do and how quickly they can do it. Um, and they still don't know uh, what they don't know. I mean, they're just <laughs> cruising along at top speed. Um, so to make sure that uh, youth is not wasted on the young, <laughs> it's good to get mentors in to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, ideally, maybe not the professors that have been on campus all their lives, but maybe people from the uh, outside. And we are lucky here in uh, Southern California that many uh, successful entrepreneurs have sold their companies and moved here to retire in this <laughs> nice climate, maybe a little prematurely, and they're anxio- anxious to do something. And we could maybe have a program uh, in, at UCSD to formally try to match up uh, entrepreneurial uh, students with experienced maybe, you know, senior executives or, or um, innovators that have moved here and are looking for interesting things to do. Paul? Well, I think there are still some walls to try and break down. We, we have a really terrific uh, intellectual property office at Berkeley. Uh, but they're not quite in the uh, ecosystem where, where Gavin would be working. 
And they're smaller. We, we've done a study, actually, from the Vice Chancellor of Research's office, and our peer institutions, especially the private institutions, have more people working in those offices who sort of get out to the labs, talk to people like Gavin, and try and make more contacts uh, that lead to intellectual property, invention disclosures, and so on. So I think we're still breaking down those walls. And things are happening. I'm not, this is not a complaint. But I think we can do more to uh, do that sort of... Uh, you said uh, entrepreneurship was a contact sport. Is it you that said that? And I think we need to do more of that from our sort of classical offices that are sometimes in a different building on campus to the places where Gavin and I work, which is this kind of hotbed of, of daily ideas. So I think a little bit more mixing of the... Mixing of the minds, mixing of the blood would be a good thing to do. Excellent. And how do we make sure that we're also capturing all the exaptive opportunities? Those are the, uh, the opportunities to kind of move sideways. That An example here at UCSD was a technology developed inside of Scripps uh, SIO. Uh, for measuring the size of nanoparticles in seawaters. Turns out that market isn't particularly big from a business perspective, but measuring the size of nanoparticles in pharmaceuticals is a big business. And so sometimes just rethinking the application and bringing a larger ecosystem into play can create opportunities that we otherwise would never see. Can uh, any of you speak to that? That very much resonates with what you do. Yeah, so what, yeah, yeah. All our software runs on hardware that was designed for a completely different purpose. Um, it's very affordable because someone else did this wonderful capital investment that we don't have to do. Um, and I think many innovators in my space, what we see is an institution can't ask for what it wants. It has to make rules that, that try to describe what it wants. So we can't say, do something good for the environment. We have to set a list of exactly what we're expecting. And innovation never fits in those boxes. So people say, oh, we made a rule saying you have to save energy because that's how you save carbon. And we come along and say, well, actually, that's not how we save carbon. That's actually a real problem because a large organization has to respond very slowly when your solution isn't what you were expecting. And I've heard many innovators say, uh, if we were able to be more flexible in the way we set targets, if we set targets more closely to the exact goal, it would be easier when these surprises come along to describe that our invention solves the problem you were trying to solve instead of the one that you were expecting a certain answer for. Anyone else want to weigh in? Well, I, uh, before I came to Genomatica, I worked for another uh, uh, biotech company uh, in the, the Bay Area called Amaris. And um, Amaris was uh, founded uh, with the um, purpose of developing a fermentation-based process to make a chemical called artemisinin, which is in turn used uh, in a uh, therapy to cure malaria. And um, the founders of Amaris were highly motivated to make a difference, literally to save a million or two million lives a year. That technology platform turned into something that was also useful in developing a, a low-carbon diesel fuel. And oh, by the way, the same technology platform has been useful to develop an emollient in high-end cosmetics that replaces a chemical that's currently uh, extracted from the livers of deep water sharks. So once you get momentum uh, and, and you have that platform, uh, if you have your eyes open, it can lead you into all kinds of good and interesting directions. Excellent. Well, unfortunately, uh, we are cutting this panel a little bit short so that we can make bus schedules today. So I'd like to uh, thank all the panelists for their contributions today and encourage us to have conversations either after the panel for those of you who are able to stay. But I want to thank them for their uh, comments. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.